Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of Classic Coverage, the podcast that looks at classic movies back when they were just screenplays. My name is Max Davison, and I am your host. I am a writer. I am a content creator. I have an MFA in screenwriting from USC. I, uh, I'm currently running a Kickstarter, which has just 25% support with uh, about three days left, so please go and check that out. Uh, I am a Nichols Fellowship submitter. Still haven't heard back. But more importantly and more relevantly, I am a script reader for a major Hollywood studio. Uh, once more, I cannot say which studio unless my bosses find out that I'm doing this on company time. But uh, I'll say that uh, the other day, actually, I hurt my leg playing basketball, and uh, Disney is really giving me some problems. Before we go any further, uh, something I should probably mention, I get paid by this production company per script that I turn in, and so as I'm taking time away from my job to do this podcast, I am just leaving money on the table. So I've decided that this week I'm going to try to monetize this podcast just a little bit with our new sponsor, Blue Apron. Uh, I, I don't use their service. Uh, it's way too expensive for me. However, uh, one of the uh, development execs here, he was raving about it. He say that, says it's a great service, and it's a way of having like a home-cooked meal with everything delivered right to him. Uh, so, uh, yeah, go to blueapron.com and use the offer code classic coverage. Uh, if you use that code, you will get a 401 error message that says we do not accept this code, but if enough people keep typing it in, I think they will have no choice but to, uh, throw some money my way. So, uh, keep it up, everybody. Get me paid. And a quick update. Uh, two weeks ago, I read a script called Thaw. You might remember. It's the one about the cryogenically frozen detective from 1960s who wakes up in the 2060s. Uh, I gave it a pass. Uh, my boss seemed to like it, and they brought in the writer last week for a meeting. The writer did a very quick pass. Uh, it was kind of like a, a Control-F pass where he changed all of the locations from New York to New Orleans just for the sake of a tax credit. Uh, but the script, it was shockingly very well-received. And uh, it's funny, I, I accidentally jumped on a conference call earlier today. I thought I was dialing out. But, uh, yeah, they were talking to Antoine Fuqua, of all people, to direct this. So... Uh, Keep your eyes peeled on Deadline, because a mediocre script that I didn't care for could very easily be working its way through the development ladder. My assignment today was to read a script that was handed to me. It's, uh, oh, it's kind of like Sully, where nowadays you can take any quote-unquote American hero and try to turn their life into a biopic. So the script that I was handed today was called K. The Mike Krzyzewski story. That's right, you might know him better as Coach K, head coach of Duke, Duke men's basketball. Uh, yeah, the, uh, his life is somewhat interesting. I, I did not know that he was in the Army, and that at one point he was a player under Bobby Knight, and when he got out of the Army, he then became an assistant coach to Bobby Knight. But uh, there's not really much to his story. You just watch him succeed as a head coach. And, uh, you know, and all the young men under his tutelage, they grow to become great players and great men. And there isn't that much scandal. Actually, the, uh, the ending, they do sort of the money ball thing where he's thinking about taking the Laker job back in 2011. And so he's waiting to uh, go to a meeting with Joey Buss. And he's wondering, do I leave college? Do I go to the pros? And, uh, you know, we already know what happens, you know. To be honest, actually, there's not a, there's a good me a story to be told about his basketball team back in 92, uh, who would play Christian Leitner? Miles Teller. Miles Teller would be perfect. He's got a punchable face. Michael B. Jordan as Grant Hill. Oh, and we tell everything in flashback as everything is... The entire movie takes place within the seconds of Grant Hill inbounding that pass from the baseline. Okay, okay, this is actually... This is good. Okay, uh, 
I'm going to give the script a pass anyway, but I really hope that nobody picks up the Coach K biopic because I need to start writing my pick about the 1992 Duke men's basketball team. Oh, God, who else was on that team? Bobby Hurley, uh, Cherokee Parks. She wants to, oh, God, this is, okay, this is actually a good idea. So for today's classic script, I took the golf cart and I cranked that baby all the way up to about 11 miles per hour and nearly crashed into the guardrail. But I got over here to the vault and I decided to look at a script that was also ripped from the headlines, something that took actual events and decided to turn them into cinematic history. So uh, get ready, because now it's time to read a classic script from the 1990s. Title. Untitled James Cameron Titanic Project. Screenwriter, James Cameron. Page count, 198. Genre, disaster slash romance. Draft date, April 14th, 1993. Logline. star lovers meet on the doomed maiden voyage of the RMS Titanic. Comments. After reading the first act, I set the script down to realize that we weren't on the water yet. Yes, this is a script about the Titanic, but we don't get on board the ship until page 35. It takes until page 98 for the inevitable iceberg to enter the picture, meaning that this weighty script is so predictable due to the historic source material. We know how the story ends, and Mr. Cameron's script offers no twists and no inherent suspense. Most of the script is dedicated to the love story of Jack and Rose, which proves trite and unbelievable. Mr. Cameron's sensibilities in the past have been in action, so his handling of a romantic plotline relies on hackneyed dialogue and unearned romance. Their relationship is somewhat engaging, if not overly familiar, but it is simply not enough to carry a nearly 200-page behemoth of a script. The audience knows that the Titanic is inevitably going to crash and sink, so we are playing the waiting game, hoping that the iceberg will show up in some reverse Godotian fashion. It's like doing a story about the Garden of Eden and the second act twist is that Adam and Eve get kicked out. We know this story, and there is nothing new about it here. In The Towering Inferno, you didn't know who would survive or if the building would be rescued. In this script, historical figures such as the unsinkable Molly Brown and John Jacob Astor are a nice touch to add an air of legitimacy, but it still doesn't change the fact that this ship is going to follow a very predictable course. When the icebreak does enter, at page 98, it gives us a good midpoint break, but it is merely fulfilling the obvious telegraph plot point. Not only do we know that the boat sinks, but we also know that Rose survives the crash, and we can also sense that Jack didn't make it. This reader figured that out very early on. The only mystery of the script is what happened to the Blue Diamond, but that leads to an anticlimax that deprives the story of any meeting, as well as depriving the treasure hunters of their payoff. The majority of the script is dedicated to a doomed love on a doomed ship. The relationship is what is supposed to drive the story and make the audience care and invest in this love story, but it is a paint-by-numbers romance. Girl chasing after the boy her parents don't approve of while running away from her abusive sociopathic fiance is a trope that we have seen numerous times before. It's an upstairs-downstairs clash of cultures, Jack being a low-class hustler and Rose being a cultured high-society debutante. Jack acts as a manic, underprivileged dream boy, offering her a lowbrow life that she has been deprived of. He teaches her how to spit, paints her in the nude, they dance in the lower decks, which is contrasted quite obviously with the stuffy, tuxedo-clad dinners upstairs. The depiction of these two classes is quite on the nose. On page 38, Jack says, When you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. It's a bit jarring to hear a Bob Dylan quote back in 1912. The script's true undoing is the below-average, on-the-nose, and bland dialogue. People say exactly what they think, often without provocation. 
The first time Jack and Rose meet, he randomly breaks to an anecdote to offer us some insight as to how he was raised before offering the point-blank observation, you seem like an indoor girl. Jack's dialogue is primarily blunt, asking her, do you love him, about the fiancé. She responds, you don't know me, and I don't know you, and we aren't having this conversation. You are rude and uncouth. This is a very tacky way of getting out exposition, and most of their early interactions go on like this, stating the obvious. Rose then states, why can't I be like you, Jack, and just head out onto the horizon? The elegance of the clothing is inversely proportional to the clunkiness of the dialogue. Another winner later on is when Rose points out, you have a gift, Jack, you see people. And he responds, I see you. Honestly, it would not surprise me if a middle schooler who just found out about romance wrote this script. Mr. Cameron needs to listen to actual conversations to learn how people speak. This reader understands that this is a period piece, but even people in 1912 do not speak in such stilted dialogue. Hidden in these pages are two better stories. One is about why the Titanic actually crashed, tracking Captain Edward Smith, a man under pressure to reach New York even faster. He's a man who goes down with his ship, not even trying to escape. There's an interesting point in Act 2 stated that not enough lifeboats are on the ship as they would clutter up the deck for the maiden voyage. The actual nuts and bolts of the Titanic's crash and sinking could strengthen a story about man's affront to nature. It could be a perfect source of man versus environment conflict. The other story revolves around the treasure hunters in the present, which feels like a much more engaging story and more at Mr. Cameron's alley. There's an urgency to find the treasure and a clear goal for them, but they're merely an inactive framing device. After following them for the first 30-some-odd pages, they disappear until page 85 for a brief appearance, and then they return to complete the framing device on page 170 for a brief coda. Brock Lovett, the lead treasure hunter, wasted three years of his life on this hunt, and his story lacks any closure as Rose merely throws a necklace into the ocean at the end. Older Rose adds, A woman's heart is an ocean of deep secrets. Again, some middle school student wrote this oh-so-subtle metaphor. At page 100, the script transforms from a romance into a disaster film, and the sinking of the Titanic, currently written as a 60-page set piece, could be a good action sequence. Lots of death, lots of destruction, one man loses his life via propeller. The budget, however, would be huge, possibly astronomical, for this large, large set piece. In the end, James Cameron's Titanic, Titanic Project is a story undone by its historical source material, turning what should be an engaging tale of survival into a foregone conclusion. It's not as though you can make a movie where a team of commandos attempts to assassinate Hitler and they actually accomplish it. This script, unfortunately, is weighed down by what actually happened. The disaster plotline could work, but the love story is the weakest part of the script. Trying to manufacture a love story in a predictable disaster is like, well, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Recommendation. Pass. And there you have it. That's what they thought of Titanic. And I can't uh, bring myself to argue. Not a very well-written movie. Uh, to be honest, Full Monty should have won Best Picture that year. Just a lot stronger. You know, you believe in the characters a bit more. The nudity is a bit more playful. Uh, but what do I know? Uh, so if you'll excuse me, I'm off to go leave studio premise so that when I start writing this Christian Leitner biopic, I am not on company property, and there is no way they can later sue me for control of the script. Uh, I probably shouldn't be admitting to that on this podcast, but uh, hmm, so it goes. 
Anyway, uh, until next week, I'd like to thank Noah Goldberg for providing the theme music for the show. If you like it, uh, please rate, subscribe, and uh, tell a friend about the show. Uh, we get by on word of mouth, and uh, there aren't a lot of words or a lot of mouths, uh, judging by my subscription rate. So uh, let's do something about that. My name is Max Davison, and until next week, I'm always reminding you that even the classics could use another pass of notes.